Would you please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to the Gospel of Matthew in the very last verse of Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew chapter 28, verse number 20 will be the text of our sermon this morning. What a delight it is to open the Word of God together with you this morning. We are launching into our 14th year of ministry together with you, our family is. And it has uh, come to us as a great joy to do so. And I didn't imagine that we would last this long. (laughs) Or you, that you would last this long. But God has given us great endurance and a great love that we have shared with one another in the bonds of Christ. And uh, we are thankful for the uh, ministry that's been entrusted to us, first by the Holy Spirit, but secondly by you as a church. And I look forward to more of what God has in store for us as we labor together for the cause of Jesus Christ. And um, it certainly seems like, I feel like um, this is the first day on the job so often. As a matter of fact, I remember the first day on the job. I had served for um, 10 years previously as assistant pastor to some very godly men in some wonderful churches around the country before coming here and uh, in a sense was kind of told what to do all of the time. Um, That's a really blunt way to put it. That's not quite how it was, but uh, on the first day on the job here, I thought, well, uh, besides Jennifer, who's going to tell me what to do? I remember sitting in the office that first day and uh, on my desk, and I had to figure out what I was going to do with uh, with, uh, us as a church. And, And I just remember seeking the Lord that morning and the only thing on my desk, I didn't have all kinds of papers to do and things like that, was my Bible. And I uh, just had a moment there with the Lord where I recognized that um, it was always him that would have to tell me what to do and that he was the pastor of this church and that someone was going to tell me what to do and I needed to listen and follow and be faithful to obey everything that he had commanded me to do and with courage take it on. And I remember that feeling of, um, of at first some liberty and then constraint, um, compulsion um, under the lordship of Jesus Christ to do his bidding and to serve as he would. And it's been with uh, virtually every day with trembling that I serve you as a church, knowing um, how vulnerable I am and how vulnerable we can be to um, the evil one and also to our own flesh, our own ways, And I praise God for the faithfulness that his word has been for us all. His word has been faithful to us. We have been faithless and unfaithful at times, but he has remained faithful to us. Praise be his name. So in Matthew chapter 28 and verse number 20, and I'd like for us to read beginning of verse 16 as Jesus assembles with some believe, by the way, the 500 witnesses, of his resurrection. But we especially believe there is 11 disciples here in Galilee on this mountain where Christ had appointed this uh, discussion to take place. So in verse 16, please follow along with me, Matthew 28. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Thus says the word of God. Would you pray with me? Well, Heavenly Father, here this morning, we certainly recognize that you are with us because we are about this task of making disciples together this morning in our worship and ministry together. And so we praise you, Jesus, for your presence. We acknowledge it. We bow before you. Spirit of God, bring these teachings to our lives in practical and and even confrontational lives. We depend upon the faithfulness of the word that's been delivered to us by faithful apostles and faithful disciples who have gone before us. Father, this morning, would you open our hearts and open the ears of our hearts that we would receive the very words of Jesus Christ. Sanctify this moment to be precious for us. Let us live by every word that comes from your mouth today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The promise of God's presence has, throughout the scriptures, been given in light of his sovereign authority and his abiding presence. Recall with me God's presence all the way in the beginning of our Bibles. No need to turn there, but in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, Moses stands before the burning bush. And God assures Moses that he would be with him. He assures him that he would be able to fulfill the calling that God has just called him to do. Moses, go back to Egypt where you ran from because you were a murderer. And tell them to let the people of God go. But I will be with you. In a similar way, God came to Joshua and commissioned Joshua upon Moses' Deceasing and and uh, Joshua as Moses' successor, God tells Moses, uh, God tells Joshua that there would be victory wherever he went when he would lead the people of God into the promised land. Essentially, God said, "No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will be with you." I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you, so therefore be strong and of good courage, and be not afraid. God would continue to repeat this blessing of his abiding presence with his people we saw through the prophet Isaiah in in Isaiah 43, and God would repeat this blessing often even to wayward people when they would not listen to the faithful prophets such as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Haggai, who repeat these exact words, I will be with you. Never would God abandon his people. Never would God abandon his people, although they would like to abandon him. Then comes the Gospel of Matthew in our Bibles. And God himself arrives on this earth in unmistakable, miraculous, physical presence through the incarnate Son, Jesus the Christ. All the longing of God's presence to be made even more plain would be satisfied now. God has finally, physically arrived. And on the very first page of Matthew, in the New Testament, in the Bible, God says, I am here. I am here. And it's through the angel's message to the faithful man, Joseph, that God announces that his name is with. 
His name is with God with us. Joseph, Matthew 1.23, the angel says, Name this child of Mary God with us. In Matthew 1.23, Joseph, hearing that this was the name that he was to give him, named him Emmanuel. And he considered all these things. And behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So from Matthew's gospel, in the very first page of the gospel, we're hearing that God is with us. And on this very last page, in fact, some of the very last words in Matthew's gospel, still God is with us. Jesus is with us. And God is so with us. He has always been with his people. And that truth and that promise needs to be nailed down. It needs to be nailed down in the mind and heart of every follower of Jesus Christ. God with us. God with you. God with me. And all throughout the book of Matthew, we see that Jesus never leaves his disciples. He is always with them. And so like in Matthew 1, the very first words of the gospel, Matthew is diligent to share again with, the un, with unflappable assurance that Jesus will forever be with his disciples. He will never leave them. And even now, as they set out to this great task, really this impossible task from, from man's venture, from man's viewpoints, this impossible task of making disciples of all the nations, God will be with them. He will go with them. Their going will be his going. And so this morning we're going to be looking at just this very last part of this, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and then this last part, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so number one, as we look at the truths of this passage, number one, we see an unshakable assurance. I am with. It's interesting to note that Jesus doesn't say, I will be with you. But he says, I am with you. The presence that his disciples had enjoyed with the Lord and are enjoying in this moment will continue, though in a different form. In the same Christ that they had walked with, traveled with, seen miracles done, prayed with, ate with, lodged with, the same presence, now they will know by faith, like you and I, not any longer by sight. They would need the assurance, just like you and I need the assurance because we cannot see the presence of Jesus. They would need the assurance, as we do, that Jesus would be no less with them, although they would not see him. And folks, I, I often wonder if, if, if so often we long and we ache and we say, Oh Jesus, if I could just see you, if I could walk with you like the disciples were with you, I would not be so discouraged or I would not be so lacking of courage or I would not feel so lonely. But you see, Jesus gives us the assurance, Oh, you don't see me, that doesn't mean I'm any less with you. 
And the disciples had enjoyed that at least three and a half years of presence in Jesus. And at 1 John 1, John said, John said that that one whom we had touched and we had seen and we had heard, it's, it's like he's still here with us. He is still here with us, John says in 1 John 1. And we as believers here living in 2022 are no less recipients and in the presence of the risen Lord Jesus Christ than those disciples. And I, I, I feel like there's just a little bit of pushback. I can tell you that in my spirit, as I even say that to us, because we are so reliant upon sight. But it is true. And he would be with them. What does it mean that he would be with them? Well, we had seen that he had alluded to, he had, he had uh, directly uh, proclaimed that he would be with them in authority, in power. So he was with them, first of all, in power. The gospel message will move through them to powerfully transform lives, changing the dead to the living. As they would go out and make disciples his power, they will be agents of his power. When they would speak the word, faithfully proclaiming the good news, God would powerfully move through them to make disciples. But also we see that not only in this power, intrinsic in the power and the derivative of the power is the authority. That he would be with them in authority. They would be agents of his authority. Do you know that when you proclaim the word of God, you stand squarely in the authority of Jesus Christ? The king of all the universe. You stand right in the middle of his authority when you proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. So listen, there's nothing else that can give you so much authority. There's nothing else where you could derive such authority. This is unparalleled authority. When you proclaim the good news of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, you stand in the middle of the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus was granting the agency of the authority to every disciple carrying the gospel, giving liberty to freely disperse the good news, even if it is unwelcome in all the nations. We don't need authority. We don't need permission to share the good news. We have authority from the God of all ages, the God on high. We have all authority from heaven and on earth to preach the good news. But thirdly, not only in power and authority, but thirdly, we see that he is with them in presence. The Holy Spirit, by the way, is later called in some of the the, uh, the writings of the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. There'll be another name for the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. Why would, why would the Apostle sort of change the name, even the Spirit of God in inspiration, change the name of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, into the Spirit of Christ? And that is because, again, the Spirit is Christological. That is, the Spirit of the Holy Spirit is drawing our hearts unto the loving Savior, Jesus Christ. He is bringing all things that Jesus has committed. His ministry is to magnify Jesus in our lives. And so his name will be the Spirit of Christ. So several times in, in throughout the epistles from the Apostle Paul, but specifically in Philippians 1.19, the Holy Spirit is named the Spirit of Christ. Christ is personally present and active in every disciple's life. And fourthly and wonderfully, not only is, is Jesus with the disciples, not only in power and authority and presence, but also in comfort. In comfort. And I think, by, by the way, this is accentuated by the favorite word that I think Matthew likes to use here in the Gospel. And we have referred to this 
more towards the beginning of his gospel. But notice looking down at your Bibles, and you'll see this, and behold, behold. It is stop everything you're doing. Hold your breath even. Behold. I think the, the presence of Christ, this promise, I am with you, is accentuated by the word behold. Just as powerful and as packed of meaning the word therefore, go into all nations making disciples, but this word behold is also packed with this accentuation. Behold, I am with you. Behold, I am with you. It isn't the world or the nations necessarily that are intimidating. It is the age or the time in which you are discipling the culture, the adversity of the fallen world, and the agony brought to us by the fall of this world. Isn't the, the, this world, isn't the culture and the times in which we live, isn't it felt very deeply within us, the pressure and experience also by those forces pressing on us from the outside? And so Jesus is saying, Behold, I am with you in the middle of the now. In the middle of the now of every part of your life, in the middle of of whatever it is, whatever season it is, and we're going to get into this later on, but he is with you. That ought to be a comforting thing. And so, yes, power and yes, authority and yes, presence. But certainly because of these, there is a quiet and resilient confidence that is well nigh comfort. Have you ever needed to walk into some place important and represent yourself before a decision, before a decision maker, and felt the deep gut check of the lack of surety and confidence? Have you ever just needed someone else to be with you in a moment where something big was about ready to take place, perhaps even life-changing? Have you had... Have you ever had someone that was with you that was able to represent you or speak for you or give you companionship so that you didn't feel alone? Maybe it wasn't going before a decision maker, but it was going into a time of hardship such as perhaps a surgery or procedure or dealing with a potential or real dramatic loss or going into a formidable challenge. And you found in that moment that having a person or a team or a family who is with you in presence was so much of what you needed so that you'll be able to follow through, so that you could follow through. Well, this comfort of Christ's presence is the unshakable assurance of not only Christ's interest in your dealings according to God's will, but the comfort of Christ's presence is his personal, abiding, enduring care, comforting presence in the midst of the time in which you live. And in this passage in particular, Christ is saying that his presence is inseparable and faithful to each disciple who obeys him in making disciples. Christ is giving unshakable assurance that his presence is inseparable and faithful to each disciple who obeys him in making disciples. The second truth we find here in this passage is an unwavering commitment, not only an unshakable assurance, I am with, but an unwavering commitment. An unwavering commitment to you. And so it is here at the end of the Gospel of Matthew 
Consider the situation that the disciples were facing at that moment. These disciples were largely Galileans, at least by and large. It, it seems likely that there were other people present at this time, but these, these were Galileans. Now, Galileans doesn't mean much to you and I, but Galileans were regarded in this time period as second-class citizens. Galileans were regarded as second-class citizens. They're from the ghetto, so to speak, of Galilee. They're regarded this way by Judean Jews, and they were thought of even by the Romans, if you want to think of it this way, they were thought of as hillbillies, the Galileans were. Now, mind you, Jesus was from Galilee. Do not believe that Christ knew who he was saving and who he was commissioning when he called the twelve to follow him. And do you not believe that Jesus knew who he was saving and who he was commissioning when he gave you and I this great commission? Look around. Don't laugh. But we're just a bunch of hillbillies here. I saw some of you looking all at one person. Now, I won't say who that was. Maybe it was me. But we are. We're Galileans. If any of us have any honesty about ourselves this morning, we don't feel like we have much going for us when it comes to being worthy of the calling and commission of Jesus to do his great task. All of us feel like unprofitable servants. Do you not know that God knew who he was saving and what he was getting into when he called a people like you and I to do his great commission? Do you not believe that Christ didn't count the cost of what it would be like to save and commission disciples like you and I to do this wonderful task? He has called the fools to confound the wise. We might think ourselves a worthless Galilean. We might consider ourselves an untrained disciple. Someone who struggles, we might think of ourselves as Moses, someone who struggles with words and, and the timing of words, and, and even with confidence. We might think of ourselves as someone who is unworthy of such a great commissioning and appointing, and thereby we're disqualified, unqualified, or maybe we're excused. In biblical words, we might consider ourselves to be a fool when it comes to clearly presenting the good news of Jesus Christ. Ah, but such are the ones who God delights in. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes the type of disciples that God has chosen to change the world. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, beginning of verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So let's remember firstly that it is not us who appear to be the fools. But the message we preach sometimes appears to the world to be utter folly. It's not our eloquent tongues. 
that will take the folly of the preaching of the word of God in the world's eyes. It is not our eloquent tongues that will change the human heart, but the power of the wisdom of God. The Apostle Paul continues in the second chapter then, furthering the same conversation. 1 Corinthians 2, 2, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. How did Paul, the Apostle Paul, say he was with the people in Corinth? He said, I was with you in weakness. I was with you in fear. I was with you in trembling. We do not know the nature of all of these parts of his condition, whether he was fearful of further beatings and and of abuse and of being run out of town or whether he was weak from having received such or whether he was fearful uh, about the task before God of carrying it faithfully. But nonetheless, the Apostle Paul says, I did not rely upon eloquence. And the Apostle Paul was an eloquent man, well-trained above his peers. But he says, when it came down to sharing the gospel with you, I came in weakness and I didn't come with words put together with a silver tongue. So that when all was said and done, your faith, your transformation would not be dependent upon who I was and what I had said, but upon the power of the Spirit of God. I'm sure that today as I preach, there are many of us here who are saying that we feel utterly inadequate to share the Word of God in some meaningful way to someone else. But as I read in Scripture, and the more I read, especially in the New Testament, it's simply not the case for those who are called Jesus' disciples. Every one of us is equipped to some measure to carry about the task of discipling. This isn't a task that's reserved for the elders of the church or the saints who have gone to Bible college or who have taught Sunday school for decades. And folks, disciple-making is a task that we at Providence can't excuse ourselves from. I'm looking this morning at Bible teachers and preachers and helpers all over the room this morning. We're going to be launching in the new year a new set of ministry goals. And as pastors, Pastor Golden and myself are praying that among us, God will raise up many who will be burdened to reach our toddlers, to reach our children, to reach our young people, and our older people more and more with the teachings of Jesus Christ. There will be death in the church that shrugs off disciple-making to just a chosen few. If you're here today and you're convicted about not being more involved in making disciples, you'll need to pray and listen as God begins to open doors to show you and simply shows you the doors that are already open in our church ministry to serve the word of Christ. So often, as we have been learning, we are... The sin lies not in the not knowing, but in the not doing the will of God. This is clearly the will of God.
for us. That churches are thriving centers for disciple makers. Where the average church member is fully engaged in intentional word-centered ministry with others who are in the church. Our church, Providence, is in need of people who will give themselves selflessly to serve the risen Christ by teaching all things that he has commanded them. When Jesus says, I will be with you, it means something when Jesus says it. It means that the second person of the Trinity, the Holy Son of God, the Almighty Savior and Sovereign King, has not passed over you to be with a more loved or a more qualified disciple to do the task. He hasn't passed over you. No, with you means that he knew who you were when he died for you. And he called you anyways to make disciples. He didn't forget who you were when he gave you this great commission. He didn't all of a sudden give this commission and then to the 11 disciples and then tell Peter, "Uh, you're going to cause a pretty big problem in my churches among the Jews. So I just want you to do part of the commission. God knew the mess of our lives and he knew the extent of our lives when he called us to be his children and then said to make children. He knew your backstory. He knew your failures. He knew your personality. He knew your circumstances. He knew your limitations. He knew your weaknesses. He knew it all. He knew Peter. And he knew John. And he knew Thomas. And he knew Matthew. And he knows you. And you are among those whom he has called. The way in which God displays his power in this world is not with weapons of warfare like missiles and tanks, and battleships. And not by the most winsome and charismatic of people, but by using the use of disciples to deliver the good news which will change the human heart so that a lost person becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ. You see, the most powerful the most powerful weapon against the forces of darkness in this world is a surrendered disciple sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. We aren't afraid of a nuclear war. We're not afraid of corrupt politicians. We're not afraid of a culture that's running downhill fast and over a cliff. Because we have an incomparable power. We have all authority under heaven and on earth. We, you, the use of disciples. A thirdly, an unending love.
an unending love, always, to the end of the age. In a quite literal way of translating this, we could even say, the whole of every day. The whole of every day. Jesus says literally that he will be with his followers all the days until the end of the age. And so some grammarians believe this is well translated, the whole of every day until the end of time. And Jesus here is reinforcing something to make it emphatic. Remember we had seen all authority under heaven and earth? And we had seen this multiplication of emphasis, all authority under heaven and earth, and this reinforcement of it. So too, Jesus doesn't just stop with always. He makes it emphatic. Unto the whole of every blink of your eye, every swallow in your throat, every step you take, every breath you breathe, with the whole of every day, I am with you in power, in authority, in presence, in comfort, the whole of every day. I am with you always. Jesus was named Emmanuel, God with us. And now he promises to be with his disciples until the end of the time. He is with them specifically in the responsibility of teaching his will to the world. But it's a continuation in the loving comfort. Behold, I will be with you always, without break. The all-powerful, all-ruling Christ does not take breaks from his promise of always being with you. Now, of anybody who lives with you, he's the one who deserves to take a break from you, right? You ever wanted a break from yourself, even? But Jesus will never break away from being with you. Jesus is waiting at the end of time for us to arrive. He's waiting for us at the end of history. I am with you to the very end of the age. Jesus is promising to be the happy ending of both the world's history and our personal history. He's the happy ending. Disciples like you and I are to move towards an antagonist nation as ambassadors of peace towards the broken and fallen world as ministers of reconciliation and towards the poverty-stricken world as servants to the poor. But we've moved towards the world in all of this knowing that God will bring an end to war and he'll bring an end to injustice and he'll bring an end to division and poverty, even of spirit, but he'll bring an end to the poverty of body, that is, even our our health and our sufferings. But the end of the ages is a phrase that Matthew uses in several places to indicate the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this isn't just the end of time, and then it's just what Jesus is saying here in Matthew, and Matthean theology is saying here, until Jesus comes again, he is with you. And we say, how can the both be true? Well, it's God. 
He's always with us. And then he comes. And he will bring about in that time a new world where we will have a new body. And as the new risen Christ, he is with us, not just in this present time, filled with evil and suffering and hardship, but as our triumphant Lord in that time, he is waiting at the end of it all. Listen, Jesus is waiting at the end of it all to heal and renew and absolutely everything. That's his promise. In conclusion, the word with. The word with sums up everything that the salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Consider and meditate on the word with this week as you dwell with the Lord in the word and in prayer. Could it be that the word with is just an excellent one-word summary of all of the hope of the good news of Jesus Christ? If you could choose one word to share of what it is to know Jesus Christ and to be at peace with God and to live with Him in, in an everlasting way and to know the forgiveness of sins, the banishment of sin from us, to know that we are no longer under condemnation, perhaps the word with includes all of that. The word with is the biggest theological word in our Bibles. With. So significant is this word that God included the, the word with in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. It is a word filled and up to the brim with hope and promise and comfort. No true believer in this world is ever alone. If one could simplify the entire gospel into one word, it would just be that word with. It is an overwhelming word to ponder on. It's so simple of a word that a child can grasp it. And yet so meaningful that an angel can consider it in their worship. And so profound and inescapable that even an aged saint can lay at rest in the valley of the shadow of death and be completely comforted by one word. That's because with isn't a word that we see in the scriptures. It's not merely a word. It's the person, Jesus Christ. It's his name. An even more sobering thought this morning is this. That if there is a with, then there is a without. There are some who Jesus is never with and never will be with. They're the ones when hearing of his saving mercies and forgiveness of sins refuse to humble themselves to call upon him to be with them. They would rather be without him. And the Bible says if this person chooses to be without God, they will be without God. Forever. And to be without Christ is hell. It is hell. And that's no exaggeration. God will banish all those who in this time desired to be without Him 
to be eternally without him. And that's what hell actually is. Yes, it's a place where God assigns those who refuse his call to abide forever without the blessedness of his presence. It's more than an eternal flame. Hell is more than eternal torment. It's a place where God says that the soul like a worm will never die and never receive the blessing that is found to be with him. There is no more terrifying word in all the world and in all of Scripture than the word without. And if you're here this morning or you're listening to this message and you are without Jesus Christ, Jesus says to you, you do not need to remain without me. He pleads unto you this morning through his word that you can come to him, you who are without, you who have no reason that he would ever want to be with you, you who feel so wrecked by guilt and sin and wonder, could it be possible that God would ever want to be with me? And Christ gives with lasting surety and unchanging words this morning in a heart full of love for you and unshakable assurance that he wants to be with you. He wants to be with you. And he can be this morning by you asking him, by you seeking after him and humbly laying aside all reasons why he shouldn't be with you. And humbly calling upon him this morning and saying, God, please forgive me. I want you to be with me. There's no more terrifying word in the human language and in theological realms than the word without. And there's no more wonderful word to the Christian. To those who have found Jesus to be everything. There's no more wonderful word. What is the word, audience? Let's say it together. With. Jesus ended his earthly life with these words because he wanted us to respond. He was motivating us to act. The promise of the Lord's presence with his people is given in the context of a summons to serve. The promise of his presence was given in the context of a summons to serve him by taking the gospel to the world. So the question is, listen, surely at the end of the book of Matthew is not, is God with us? The question is, are we going and making disciples that others could be with him? That's how, that's how Matthew ends his book. The summons to serve because of the surety of the presence of Jesus Christ. Let's pray this morning.